a lot of the things that are quote unquote good for us, you know, if you, if you dive, if you're just rejecting the mainstream and you dive into, okay, well, how can I heal myself? Which I think is a really important impulse to have because it shows that I'm no longer giving my power to a medical system to heal me. I'm going to take, take this, you know, upon myself. And I understand that the body has the power to heal. So that's a really important, important impulse. And I think it's the first stage of healing is recognizing that we, we are our own healers, but then you end up in realms where a lot of the things, like I just rattled off a whole list of things. A lot of the things are just devastating to our minerals. Hey friends, welcome to the medicine stories podcast, where we are remembering what it is to be human upon the earth. I am Amber Magnolia Hill. Today, I'm sharing my conversation with Hamid Jabbar. He is Mineral Shaman on Instagram. Relatively new account, but already at 10,000 followers because it's so good. It's so good. Thank you to Kimber Malden, my guest on episode 87, which is definitely very tied to what we talk about today. Um, for sharing his account with me. We are made from our mothers who were made from the earth, which is made of stardust, which is made of minerals. A well-mineralized body heals itself by providing our cellular metabolism what it needs to create energy and clear exhaust. Our ancestors didn't give their mineral status a second thought, but modern humans are almost all imbalanced with the ill health to prove it and minerals are wildly misunderstood. Let us remember the elemental interbeing that gives us life, understand the complex tapestry that is our individual mineral balance, and feed our mitochondria what it needs to help us thrive. I love this confluence of practical health and a truly cosmic perspective on what it means to be human upon the earth because they're not two separate things. <laughs> it's all connected. Hamid takes a really wide lens approach to minerals and to health and well-being that I just love. So yeah, again, this is very related to episode 87 with Kimber Malden, all about metabolism, especially for women, and also episode 88 with Katya Nova. So if you like this, you'll love those. The overlap here is that both mineral dysregulation and metabolic health come down to cellular function. How well is the cell and the mitochondria in the cell functioning? This is also just like the pro-metabolic or bioenergetic conversation. It's big, it's complex, it's dynamic. It's not something you're going to just understand after listening to one podcast. <laughs> it takes a long time. It takes, um, I don't know, just, you know, an open mind and curiosity and devotion to yourself and your well-being to really understand and then implement this metabolic framework. Um, so as with episode 87, this is meant to be a starting point. And as always, I have a ton of resources for you in the show notes. 
So you can find those on whatever podcast app you're listening to this on or go to mythicmedicine.love slash podcast for the homepage of this episode. You know, you've probably, you probably know everyone's magnesium deficient. You probably think you should be supplementing vitamin D. I mean, there's so many like quick answers out there, but this is a web. And when you tug on one thread, everything else moves as well. This is a very not cut and dry um, topic. And so I, I hope that this episode, this interview reflects that. Just supplementing one mineral or vitamin that you read about on a website isn't, isn't going to do it for you. And as we talk about, I really, really want this point to be driven home. Many supplements that people are taking today are wrecking their mineral imbalance. This is important. There are two Patreon bonuses that go along with this episode. They are at patreon.com slash medicine stories for the patrons who appreciate the immense amount of energy and time and love that I put into this podcast. Thank you so much, everyone, for being there. It's over 1,400 people, and it just means so much. And I really love the community and love chatting with people there. So the first bonus is a video of the Zoom conference call between my husband Owen and I and Hamid, where Hamid interprets our mineral test results. So we did a hair tissue mineral analysis, and we did what's called the full Monty blood test as well. So this is like a full picture of the state of our nutritional well-being or not. Um, we talk about the link between vitamin D and magnesium and how to supplement magnesium because the importance of taking it correctly cannot be overstated and how to calculate how much you need. We talk about active versus storage vitamin D and why you should never take a D3 supplement. This is blowing a lot of people's minds, including mine, but it's really important. It's all about not wrecking your mineral status by trying to get more vitamin D, which should really be called hormone D, into your bod. We talk about iron toxicity, which comes up in this episode as well, and issues around giving blood, which a lot of people do to lower their iron iron numbers. Why to never drink black coffee, the one measurement that could help everyone better their health, and why the FDA doesn't allow us to test for it. Um, Hamid tells me I'm a stress cadet with no retinol. (laughs) So yay. Um, no, but really I'm so happy to have had those things reflected to me and be able to address them now. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, if you've listened to many other past episodes, you know that I was vegan for a long time and that I've had two children and nursed them for four and a half years total between the two of them. And it wrecked my health in many ways between the two things. So we really go deep into that. And I love in this episode how much time Hamid and I spend looking at the mineral status of our mothers and grandmothers and how they affect us going down. Um, In that Patreon bonus video, we also talk about the real cure for anemia because it's not more iron that was known by previous generations of Americans and is still currently practiced in other countries. He tells us why the darker your skin and hair, the more bioavailable copper you need. 
and shares his liver smoothie recipe. He says, you can't taste the liver. I want to try this. The second bonus is just a 20-minute audio of me talking about what has changed since I started, since we had this consult with Hamid, and then since I started supplementing, especially one key thing, um, and just what's what's happened, what's happened since I started addressing this. And I also list the supplements I take daily, which I take very mindfully, not wanting to destroy any more minerals. Um, and I link to all of them as well there in that bonus, patreon.com slash medicine stories. This is, you know, an ongoing journey for me. Nothing is meant to say this is what you should be doing. This is the only way to do it. This is where I'm at based on what I've learned, especially through this consultation with Hamid, which you can have a consultation with him as well if you would like. The links to that are in the show notes here and they're on Patreon as well. Um, And if you don't want to or can't afford a consultation, for sure, go to rcp123.org and download the handbook. Um, So Morley Robbins is Hamid's mentor in all things mineral, minerals and magic and the matrices from which we all evolved. And Morley has created through a decade of research, the root cause protocol. So when you hear Hamid say RCP, this is what he's referring to. The root cause protocol is getting beneath all the diagnoses, all the symptoms to the heart of the matter, which is the health of the cell and the metabolism and his specific approaches through minerals. Um, So highly recommend getting that handbook just as a starting place. Um, a lot of the supplements I'm taking that I talk about in that Patreon bonus are based on on the RCP root cause protocol. <laughs> um, okay, that's it. This is good. It's long. I mean, I just, you guys, I can't, I can't try to dumb this stuff down. You know, so many people try to keep their podcasts less than an hour because of people's attention spans, and you might have noticed I just refuse to do that. I'm not like going to. Um, to dumb the populace down any further or not dumb us down, but shorten our attention spans. I'm all about the long form. I love the long form and I think most of you do too. So thanks for being here. Bonuses over on Patreon. Hamid is incredible. Check out his Instagram account at Mineral Shaman. And I hope you learn many, many helpful things from this interview with him. Hi, Hamid. Welcome to Medicine Stories. Hi, Amber. So good to see you. Yeah, I love talking to you and hearing your voice. It's very calming. And you have so much to share and such a, I mean, there's, I feel like minerals have really exploded on onto the scene recently. Do you feel that way too? I think in the last year, yeah. it's just like out of nowhere. Yeah. Everybody started talking about minerals. It sort of became the collective consciousness, you know, just erupted. And yeah, no, I'm with you. It's very interesting to see that coming about. Yeah. But what I appreciate about you, uh, you, you'd make it into, you take the whole picture. It's such a big picture filter. Um, and so on, on that note, I'm going to start by reading a post of yours. I really want to start this conversation by grounding us in 
the big picture of what minerals are instead of getting caught up in thinking they're these things in supplement bottles to remember the cosmic stardust <laughs> that we all come from. Um, so in, in a post, you wrote, minerals are the materia prima of the universe. They are the fundamental building blocks, the roots, the foundation, the essence of existence. The word materia is Latin for material and derived from mater, meaning mother, and matrix, meaning vulva or womb. I always love etymology. Minerals are part and parcel to the matrix from which we all are born, the primal stuff that makes up both the universe and our bodies. Minerals are also magic, performing incredible tricks with electrons, electromagnetism, light, and even sound. When we remember that we are made up of minerals, we remember that we are magic too, in every sense of the word. We defy all logic, and yet we exist. Never forget, you are magic. So did you, when did, when did the minerals come into your life? I, you were working with psychedelics, I think, for, for quite a while. And yeah, I don't really know about your, your path into it. And I'm curious too, and how you're able to hold this like more cosmic perspective than so many people working in the mineral sphere. Yeah, well, I think maybe because they entered my life more recently. So I spent most of the last 15 years doing other things regarding health and most of the last five to six years really diving deep into the plant medicine worlds so working with two particular plants ayahuasca and another plant wachuma and and really trying to both heal myself but just understand how those traditions and how those plants can be allies for our healing and it was through that that I got introduced to minerals because I was seeing things happening both within my own body and with the people that I was working with that I think couldn't have been explained in, in a better way than mineral deficiencies. And it didn't, really, it didn't really have any basis. There was nobody else talking about it. And so I sort of felt like I was crazy for a while. And then I think it was only about a year, a year ago, a little over a year ago that I really dove in and, and started to think about this stuff critically. And I think, you know, the poem or whatever you want to call that thing that I wrote that you just read, um, I wrote it in the bathtub. So I, I think of it more like a poem, but it's just sort of trying to encapsulate some of the magic of minerals. Because I think people think, oh, yeah, you know, minerals are, what are they? Salt and, you know, it's just, it's not that interesting. And actually, I find them incredibly interesting. It was during actually a plant medicine weekend where somebody had a card deck that had the periodic table of elements. You know, mm -hmm. people are always drawing cards. Mm -hmm. And I saw that and I thought, wow, that's different. And I, and I started to really see that in that card deck, they had sort of personified a lot of the minerals, like given them gender, given them, you know, personality. And that totally resonated with me because I had started to feel that within myself, that there's, there's energy behind each mineral and there's energies that we need to balance within us. 
And for a long time in the plant medicine world, it was always about balancing the masculine and the feminine. You know, just these two, these two archetypes. But when you get into the minerals, it's like multiple archetypes in many different aspects. And so I started to piece that together. I'm still piecing it together. But some of the things that I bring into the discussion, of course, as you mentioned, they're influenced by, by other work. I'm not a real sciencey person, believe it or not. I'm not super intellectual when it comes to understanding, you know, physics and biochemistry. I can get it. I can, I can totally understand it, but it's not the way my brain works. My brain is much more, how does this actually come together as a big picture? And I kind of try to see things as connections. And so I'm not the most knowledgeable about the biochemistry of minerals, but I think I understand how they connect within other contexts probably better than some other people. So that's kind of my gift in this realm right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So were you, you were noticing in the psychedelic space that that people were coming into that work with mineral deficiencies or were having their minerals depleted through so many plant medicine ceremonies or maybe even like one or even microdosing I've seen you say you can't microdose your way out of a mineral imbalance yeah i think you know the the first person that i noticed this in was myself because there was a period of time where i i would have considered myself extremely healthy i didn't have any major issues going on as far as my health. I was fit. I could pretty much eat whatever I wanted. Hadn't gained weight. You know, I was, I was practicing yoga. I was doing all these things. And it was right around the time that I started to work with plant medicines that my health just started to take a nosedive. And the entire time I was being told by people in that world, oh, that has nothing to do with the plant medicines. The plant medicines are super healthy. You know, the, the indigenous people work with these medicines three times a week for their whole life. It's not a plant medicine that's causing it. It's something else you're doing. So I was being sort of gaslit in a way because I thought, no, I'm not crazy. You know, there's something going on here and I couldn't figure it out. That was the first person I noticed it in. And I started to notice that with other people too. People that were seemingly healthy, normal you know, maybe some issues would start working with ayahuasca, for instance, and then they need to go back to ceremony the next month and then the next month until it became almost a dependency in order to feel good because you start to feel like there's, oh no, I need to go back because there's, there's something not right. Or um, you, you start to notice that after ceremony, you feel really good. So you want that feeling, but what you don't notice is that you're actually feeling worse than before you know, when the medicine wears off. So I, I noticed that phenomenon fairly easily. And the explanations I got in the plant medicine world were always like, well, the diet, your diet is messed up and this and that. My diet was, was not messed up. <laughs> I think that a lot of what was given to me as prescriptive diets in that world was, was more harmful than anything else. And then the other piece of the puzzle is that I noticed sort of more recently that people seeking out the plant medicine world, they were suffering, you know, from various things, whether it's um, emotional issues or physical issues. And so they're actually just in need of help. And 
I think the plant medicine world has offered people hope that there's a lot of healing to be had here. But I started to notice that maybe these people just need to get more minerals in their body <laughs> and, and they will feel better. And I, and I also acting out of just not wanting them to go down the path that I went, which is you think that this is going to be an immediate fix and actually will lead you to a three to five year process where you're going to have to figure things out and you may get worse before you get better. Um, so yeah, I think that the, the thing I mentioned about you can't microdose your way out of a mineral deficiency is, is pointing to a, a very common phenomenon, which is that people are, they're not making the right neurotransmitters for whatever reason. I, I view it now much more as a mineral issue. That's the reason they're not making the neurotransmitters. And so microdosing sort of gives them the, the neurotransmitters exogenously that their body should be making. And the point of that statement was really just to suggest people maybe look at what you're seeking and that will give you an idea of what you need. But, but there are other ways to fix it other than just turning to microdosing. How much do you think of what we moderns experience as trauma symptoms or depression or anxiety or any manner of physical health issues are really just underlying mineral imbalances? This is, well, 100%, but I don't know which came first. It's sort of a chicken and egg phenomenon because one thing we know about trauma is that trauma leads to the production of stress hormones and activation of the nervous system. If you get persistent activation of your nervous system because you have an unhealed trauma, you're going to be burning through your minerals really fast because of stress hormones. That's going to lead people into mineral dysregulation. It may have started with the trauma, but then the trauma triggers the mineral loss, which then perpetuates the issue because when your minerals leave, your neurotransmitters don't work and your nervous system gets unhappy. So I think of it like a, a vicious loop where I don't know if it was triggered by the trauma to begin with. It could be that some people were mineral, they had mineral issues before their trauma occurred and that just pushed them over the edge, but they're intertwined. So they're not separate. You know, there's always an emotional component. Um, underlying our mineral losses as well. And I think we're still trying to figure this out, you know, as far as practitioners. Yeah, what's the cause? I don't know which one causes which, but I know once they get going, it's a loop. And one way to break the loop is through addressing the trauma. Because if you can get the trauma resolved, then people's stress hormones stop burning through their minerals. But you can also address it by coming from the physical, the physical body aspect with the minerals themselves. And that can actually get people's nervous systems calmer so that the trauma doesn't have the same pull on them anymore. And maybe they're in a better place to then address the trauma because they're, they're more stable. So I don't know that there's a, a right way to look at it, but they're intertwined. Do you think that even? say an adult now who has somehow lived a traumaless life um, would have, is capable of having, of being totally mineralized in their body? Like can Westerners 
<laughs> you know, how is that like, what, what are the factors that make us so mineral deficient when like our ancestors going back in time wouldn't have even had to think about, am I getting enough nutrients and minerals? Yeah, there's a lot of things that have changed, you know, let's just go back two generations, really, maybe three to the early 1900s. You work with plants and the soils. So I'm, I'm sure you're aware, but the, the soil, there's been a massive loss of nutrients and minerals in the soil. I don't know the exact number, and it probably varies based on where people are, but they say like a 90% loss of minerals in the yeah. last 100 years. That is in and of itself frightening because the foods that we're eating just look like the foods that our great-grandparents ate but they don't have any of the underlying minerals in them. There were other factors that are really working against us. We have thousands and thousands of artificial chemicals that have been created by man that our biology had never seen. And every day there's new chemicals out there in the air, in the water, in the products that we use. Our biology is old. It knows how to deal with most of the things that Mother Nature had on this planet. It doesn't necessarily know how to deal with a lot of the new things. It's not as though they're, they're all you know, fatal to us, but I think a lot of them are, are confusing to our biology. And they disrupt our, our system. So that's another factor. I think one of the bigger factors, which I wasn't aware of until the last couple of years was that in 1940, around that time, they started to put inorganic iron into the food supply in the United States, what they call the iron fortification. And so we're not talking about organic iron, the kind of iron you would get from food. We're talking about if you took a cast iron pan and you ground it into fine shreds, that's the type of iron they've been adding to the wheat. Then in the 1960s, they doubled that. One of the interesting things is that because of our biology, we grew up on this, we grew up, we evolved on this planet, um, we wouldn't really be eating inorganic iron. It's not something that was a major part of our diet. And our bodies were designed to hold on to iron as a result, because iron was kind of a, a necessary part of our, our biology, but something that we wouldn't necessarily have in massive quantities. So our bodies evolved to hold on to all the iron that we got. You know, the only real way to get rid of iron in a significant amount is through blood loss. So what happened is they put in a lot of iron. So our bodies are carrying a lot more iron than our great-grandparents. We have iron stored in our tissues in ways that our great-grandparents didn't have. That iron creates stress on the cellular level. There's no faster way to burn through magnesium than to give somebody iron because magnesium is the, the one mineral that kind of can manage iron. But, but when we have iron everywhere, we're just burning through magnesium like crazy. And so at, it would be nice if, like our great-grandparents, we'd have to think about, you know, does our food have nutrients in it? Because it did back then. It'd be nice to think like, oh, we don't even need to think about taking magnesium. But now we've got bodies that are overloaded. A lot of us, I mean, 
it's hard to know for certain that everybody is, but I think most people that grew up eating the types of things that I ate, you know, I, I just consumed tons of iron as a kid with the Cheerios and the, the frosted flakes and the pizza and all that stuff, the pasta that our bodies now need more magnesium to manage it. There, I'm, I'm just mentioned three things that have contributed to the situation we're in, but there's even a fourth, which was that in the 1950s, it was President Eisenhower that had the heart attack. And I think the story is, is kind of shocking for us, but most Americans didn't know what a heart attack was. I mean, how can, how can that be, right? We, everybody knows what a heart attack is now, but back then that was sort of like, whoa, what is this thing? It sounds scary. It's almost like the big C, little V thing that came around a couple of years ago just scared everybody. And this guy, Ansel Keys, came around and correlated by cherry picking some countries, correlated it to dietary uh, fat. And so everything became low fat. And a lot of the foods that our great grandparents ate, you know, the butter, the heavy cream, the egg yolks, the animal products, these are products that contained retinol, the liver, that stuff got taken out of our diet. And, you know, the depletion of the soil combined with depletion of our diet with, you know, these, these ancestral foods has led to a situation where everybody's sick. I actually, I have yet to meet a person that is in this ideal state of health. That's really strange to think about. I mean, why are we the most advanced species on this planet, supposedly, yet everybody's sick? And suffering from something or dealing with some condition, and it's become normalized. I think we get we get numb to it. But for me, I I guess I live in kind of an insular world, you know, the people that I surround myself with. So if I go to a place like Walmart, which to me is like a spiritual experience, it's not that I like to shop there, but there's something really interesting about going there and just people watching. And realizing, like, what is happening? I, I feel like we're living in the twilight zone in the United States. And that everybody in there is, is sick and suffering. Um, I think it's really sad. A lot of it is related to these things that I mentioned, which at their core are minerals. But there's probably some other components to it, psychological and emotional aspects as well, spiritual. Yeah, absolutely. Um... I, I do want to talk more about iron later and the personification of the, the archetypes of the three main minerals in Morley's work and talk about him a little bit too. Um, but since you brought up, you know, the past two or three generations, you've done a couple posts that have really, really grabbed my attention. So I love thinking about mitochondria and the mother line and how mothers' nutritional status affects their children, which in our in our um previous call that's on Patreon, you you really helped me put some pieces together about my own nutritional status and what I gave my children and what I'm now very depleted in. Um, but this so there's two posts, one about the mother's mineral status and one about your grandmother's um, how our metabolism, you wrote, your metabolism is adapted to the lifestyle of your maternal grandmother, not your mother and father. 
So let's talk about <laughs> mitochondria and how mitochondria has worked and passed down um, and, and that post. And then also, maybe you can tell us what you know about your maternal grandmother and how her, her diet and lifestyle affects who you are now. Yeah. Well, I think we're moving away from the understandings that, that were kind of common the last 30, 40 years, which was that our genetics are set in stone. It's pretty well established now that genetics are maybe a blueprint at best. And what activates the genes are our environmental conditions. And that's the field of epigenetics, which is sort of shows us that people with the same DNA, you know, identical twins may actually, if they grow up separately in different environments, have different things that, that manifest and their genes will, some will turn on, some will turn off. So we can't view our genes as determinative of anything except the basic building blocks of who we might become. I think my my foray into working with ayahuasca was really informative on this because there's actual evidence now that people working with ayahuasca, they're, they're activating epigenetic changes, which explains why some people are able to heal quote unquote genetic conditions by working with that medicine. But when we talked about in that post about our genes are, or our, our um, metabolism is adapted to the lifestyle of our maternal grandmother. It's, it's something that I discovered. So it's kind of hard to talk about this without talking about my grandmother. But I come from a very interesting background because my father's line is from Iran. They're, they're Arab. They're really dark-skinned people. They had a very different lifestyle than my mom's side, and she's Hungarian. And her family comes from Transylvania, up, um, the border of Romania and Hungary. And of course, I look a lot more like my dad as far as skin color goes, but I, I found that the foods that really work with me were never the ones that my dad's side of the family ate. That just sparked my thinking early on in life because I couldn't figure out, well, how come that side of the family, you know, they eat all these foods and they don't gain any weight and they don't have any issues. And then I eat it and I'm like, this isn't right. It just doesn't feel good for me. But I remember as a kid loving my grandmother's cooking, the Hungarian cooking. And she was the best cook that I ever have met. I mean, she set the table with fine silver and it was all these dishes that, you know, you can't even go to a restaurant and get them because they're, they're within the family, you know, they're, they're goulashes and um, Wiener schnitzels and everything that was like really... Um, yeah, really heavy food, I guess you would call it, but really nourishing. It always felt really good for me. When I became aware of the fact that, actually, this goes back about 15 years where there was this project called the National Genographic Project. I had watched this on TV and you could send in a swab. Yeah, I remember that. You. I did it too. I did it at the early, the very early phase where if you were a, a man, you you could only do your mother's side or one of the, one of the sides and it started to prompt my thinking like, well, why can't they tell me both sides? But, and it had to do with the X, Y chromosomes and I didn't quite understand it. But after thinking of it for another decade and, and diving into the work that I've been doing now, I started to see, well, Oh, 
our mitochondria, that DNA, which is in these little powerhouses of our cells, comes from our mother's side. It doesn't come from our father's side. That's very fascinating to think about the fact that we have two types of DNA. We have the DNA that's in the nucleus of the cell, and then we have DNA that runs the metabolism. Well, who are we then? <laughs> you know, are we, are we the DNA in the center? Are we the DNA outside? And I think the fact that we are so complex, you know, that we have these little ancient bacteria, which are mitochondria, running and creating power and doing so many things, that we should really listen to what they want. Now, they, you have to really like dive into this, but you have to see like, okay, me, for instance, I was in my mother's womb as an egg, um, but that egg formed when she was in her mother's womb. So that means that the egg, which carries the mitochondrial DNA that is in my body, really formed in my great-grandmother. Her name was Agnes, Agi. And she lived in Romania, and she had my mom in 1950. This was 15 years post-World War II. Um, she was Jewish, and they had a lot of issues with having just come out of the Holocaust and losing family. And I you know, just think about like the stress factors that she was under when she got pregnant with my mom and what she must have been eating. Because whatever she was eating at the time, I don't think we fully understand this, but that sort of programmed epigenetic changes into the egg that was inside her and inside my mom that became me. And there's there's some reason to think that this is true because it, it seems to be a very well played out phenomenon in people. But our biology is really looking for those foods, at least on a metabolic level. So I, I don't know I don't know that it's it's something that we have an easy way of proving. There's a fantastic book called Deep Nutrition <clears throat> that talks about this. But I saw it play out in my own life. And I'll just give you one example, which is, it was hard for me to do because I was very anti, I, for a long period of my time, I didn't want to eat pork. On my dad's side, they don't eat pork because he's Muslim. Mm -hmm. On my mom's side, they're Jewish, so they shouldn't eat pork, but that's all that they ate because mm -hmm. they grew up in the mountains and that was the only meat they had, mm -hmm. which I find like a really interesting conflict so when I grew up, my grandmother's cooking was all pork. Everything was pork, basically. And when I started to get into the plant medicine world, they, that's the one thing that you, they absolutely tell you, no, you, know, you cannot eat pork. This is not compatible with these medicines and the vibration of it and this and that. And I bought into that for a long time, but I wasn't feeling well. You know, I was getting sicker and sicker. And then one day I just decided, you know, this isn't right. Like, I have to try it. I have to see if there's something to it because my grandmother ate pork and she lived to 93, you know, and I started to add pork back in. It was hard for me at the beginning just because of the thought of it and all the programming. And I started to feel a lot better really fast, just adding it back into my diet. And so I kind of had to experiment on myself to see that, oh yeah, that is true. That does work. And it, it's interesting. My dad's side doesn't eat pork they eat more like um, beef and lamb and those don't work as well with me. So I, 
I think it just comes from that kind of investigation into ourselves. And at least for me, that was interesting. And because I have the two sides of the family are so different, I think it's easier for me to kind of make that experiment within myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the, the epigenetic changes, the way that I've started to view them as, as, as testing, they're testing out. Because evolution, it has multiple steps. So let's go back to Agi, my grandmother. If the foods that were available, she ate them, um, and she programmed epigenetic changes into the egg that became me, it was really to test out to see whether those changes would be a good evolutionary move. It doesn't mean they're permanent because they're epigenetic. Um, and so, but now they're in me and they're in my mitochondrial DNA. It's possible that I could somehow um, pass these on in another way to make them a permanent genetic change into the nucleic DNA of my offspring. So I think it's just, it's more complicated than, than we think when it comes to, you know, inheriting uh, genes, inheriting, you know, preferences, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's, I was just starting to think about evolution and like de-evolution because <laughs> thinking about like, what does this mean for all these, my, our generation, the previous one or two who the women are just eating processed foods. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't know what the effect is. I think we're seeing we're seeing other problems, which is more infertility and more just signs that these changes don't want to be passed on at all because they're not healthy. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I, I interviewed my maternal grandmother a couple of years ago, and I have it recorded. And I remember asking her what she ate growing up. I don't really remember what she said, but now. I really want to go back and listen to that. She's still living. She's a hundred, but she was really stressed growing up. One of 12 kids, um, Catholic, French Catholic, patriarchy, alcoholism, poverty. She's a spitfire. Um, But I'm very curious now. And then of course, thinking about my mom and my daughters. And then if my daughters have daughters, I just love thinking about this stuff. And I love mitochondria. It's so interesting that there is this form of DNA that is only passed down through the mother line. Yeah. I started to think about that too, because like I said, my mom's side is Jewish and the belief system is always like, you're Jewish if your mom is Jewish. Mm-hmm. There's, just, there's some innate basis to this too, which I, I think you know they didn't know about mitochondrial DNA maybe, but they kind of knew there was something that only passes through the mother's line this mm-hmm. way. I also find it interesting because correlating this to the plant medicine world, there's a lot of people that are trying to reconnect with this grandmother, mother energy and trying to heal through that, that connection. And I don't think it's an accident either um, that this is sort of all coming to consciousness around this time. Mm-hmm. Well, so you have another post that's the grandmother, but um, you write much of what is attributed to genetics and healthy adults is actually attributable to the mineral status of our moms early in our lives. So yeah, let's talk about let's talk about that pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding, like just the way I love that etymology of mother matter matrix. Like we we literally give our bodies to our babies. Yeah. Yeah, this is again one of those things. I, I'm really into people watching. 
in the old days, in the old days, five years ago, you could just go and sit and watch people. Um, that's, that's kind of something I like to do. I, I think it's interesting because that post was very triggering to a lot of people mm -hmm. because everybody, everybody that's triggered by that, they want to blame their genetics. I think a lot of people want to blame genetics for everything that that's un, undesirable. They just say it's my genes or they want to actually do the opposite, which is attribute that somebody has really amazing hair, teeth, they're good looking, they live a long time, you know, they can eat whatever they want, their metabolic health is just perfect. And they'll just say, well, they have good genes. But actually, it, it's probably not the genes. And I think this goes back to, you know, not wanting to to look at some of the factors that have led to where we are. We all have very interesting stories and I'll be the first to just share mine because I think it, you know, it, we all have, we don't all have the perfect birth, the perfect conception and we weren't all nursed perfectly. Like my mother, for instance, she had my sister and then she got pregnant three months after giving birth to my sister because you know, they thought, well, she's breastfeeding, you know, she's not going to be able to get pregnant. This was yeah, the old she, belief. She ovulated without knowing it. Yeah. Because she hadn't had her period yet. Yeah. So I was conceived very quickly. Wow. And I was a lot smaller than my sister when I was born. Um, and my mom was breastfeeding while pregnant with me, which is, you know, that's a big strain. So a lot of the things that I had as a little kid, I believe they were just the fact that my mom was very depleted. And we forget sometimes that a mother has to actually create a body. <laughs> I mean, the mom has to create it. And the mom has to create it out of minerals and has to create it out of all the food she ate. And what our mother is eating is, is basically making us. So there's a lot of things that that can happen when we're younger that it's just our mother didn't have the minerals to give us maybe maybe she was dieting for 15 years and trying to maintain a figure versus trying to nourish herself and other factors like that that contribute us to us coming out without a full complement of the minerals that mother nature intended us to have this doesn't mean that we're broken and it doesn't mean that we're going to die it doesn't mean that we won't have beautiful lives. What it means is that our bodies then have to adjust and our bodies have to learn to, to use backup plans. And I think that's one of the most brilliant things that I've seen is that I, I've seen people, you know, working with them where it's like they have no minerals at all, but yet they're alive and they're doing quite well. Mm -hmm. And so to me, the good news is it, it almost... It, it matters to a degree, but it doesn't matter because our body will find a way. But certain things I think have been observed quite commonly, which is, you know, long-term health, uh, people that are just resilient, people that can do whatever they want as far as their diet, they don't gain weight, people that have beautiful hair until old age. A lot of this started very young and, and they kept it because they didn't mess it up. They didn't do anything to harm it. But it starts with the mother giving us minerals in the womb and then also probably nursing us for a good amount of time. And our mother may 
making sure that she had the right nutrients in order to do that. So a lot of mothers don't. And I think the education around it is, is really lacking. Like I talked to my mom about this. She didn't know anything about what <laughs> she didn't know that this mattered. She didn't know that her diet mattered to me. She didn't know that taking iron supplements and actually they, I think they gave her infusions because she was quote unquote anemic. She didn't know that that would have an effect on me, wow. you know, and when we look at Mother Nature, I think sometimes humans think that Mother Nature made a mistake. So the, one of the key examples I'll give is just breast milk versus formula. There's this belief that breast milk, well, it doesn't have vitamin D in it, and it doesn't have iron, well, maybe trace amounts of iron, but it doesn't have any iron to speak of. And if you're a, a formula maker, which is funny because I actually have a friend who he studied at UC Davis and became a formula maker with a PhD. They think that Mother Nature made a mistake. Oh, they forgot. Mother Nature forgot to put vitamin D in the breast milk. Mother Nature forgot to put iron in the breast milk. Just, so just what did they millions <laughs> of years of mammalian evolution got it wrong, but yeah. we figured it out. <laughs> Right. And then you go to the store and you buy formula and it's loaded with vitamin D and even advertises that on the box, like vitamin D and iron fortified. And nobody stopped to think, well, maybe mother nature didn't put those things in for a reason, you know, and there, I think that post, I don't know if it's in there or another one, but it gets complex because we're not really designed as babies to get iron and vitamin D through our mother's milk that can have long-term consequences on our health. And I think this, like I mentioned, is triggering to people because it's almost like we can't blame our mother. They didn't know. Our mom didn't know. And then if we are a mother, I'm not a mother, but I know other mothers and you're a mother. It's like, we don't know about these things and then we feel bad. But I think that the, the, the good news is that it's not always that detrimental in the long run. It can explain some aspects of our health. It could explain why as an adult, we're, we're deficient in, in certain things because we started out deficient and we just never rebuilt throughout our lives. So it's another way of looking at things beyond the genetic framework to just see that um, sometimes it's just early mineral status and what our mom ate, and what she gave us. Yeah, I really first became aware of that through that book to Deep Nutrition, which my mom gave me um, like a year after I had stopped being vegan when I had a baby at the time. You know, I don't know how she found that book, but I just remember visiting her and her being like, you have to read this. And her feeling like it made things make sense and the difference between my sister and I as well. Yeah. It's a lot about birth order and, and you know, in um, a lot of indigenous cultures had had this this rule that you should, the three years was the minimum time span between babies because of how depleting it is on the mother. Um, I'm going to read the rest of that post actually, because I think there's just, maybe there's a lot of it, but okay. In utero, mom has to download around 10% of her minerals into baby. The most important download occurs in the last trimester when mom has to provide 70 milligrams of copper directly into baby's liver. That is 10 times the amount of copper in a healthy adult's liver. I mean, so this is just, it, it go, there are many more slides, 
mm-hmm. including something about retinol. Uh-huh. Um, but it's huge. It's a huge burden. It's a huge burden. 70 milligrams of copper is more than mom has in her liver. <laughs> so what does that tell us? She's going to have to give it from somewhere. It's going to come from the diet or she's going to have to take it from reserves or she's not going to be able to give it to the baby at all. Not all of it. Then you get into complications because I work with people and I always ask them about their birth now. And believe it or not, a lot of the people that suffering from copper deficiencies as adults, they were born prematurely, mm. too early. And I think before that download occurred, you know, some, some babies just don't get it. The issue with copper is really, this all plays in together to what I was talking about with the breast milk, is that what copper does is that it helps to run all of the key enzymes in the body. And so we need it from our mom. Um, But she, you know, if she was like my my mom, my mom was just trying to diet for most of her young adult life. She was doing all the things that every other woman at the time was doing, which was avoiding saturated fat. And I think even it was like they were introducing at that time, like artificial sweeteners. It was the margarines. It was the seed oils. All of that stuff prevents us from absorbing copper. And so she didn't have the copper to give me. I mean, I'm very convinced of that now. And it wasn't, it wasn't possible for her to give me the full 70 milligrams of copper. Now, if you come out without that, you can catch up, but you know, you're, you'd have to know about that. And back then, we didn't know about that stuff. Um, the other fascinating thing is that that's just a very choreographed, beautiful example of mother nature, you know, that, that it's timed so perfectly that in the last trimester, the copper comes and that I think it continues in the post, but then as the birth is happening, there's a final download. It completes through the, the umbilical cord. And also there's a final download of iron at that time. I think this is after the baby comes out, but before the placenta is delivered. Exactly. Before. And that's the whole issue now with cord clamping and and doing things like that. Which I did not do with either of my daughters. So perhaps they got (laughs) some copper from me. Yeah. They say, even I think the WHO, you know, for whatever they're worth, they have been saying, don't, don't touch the cord now, you know, let it, let it keep pulsing. Um, Because that's the final download of copper, iron and other key minerals that, that again, it's just like a dance. It's like, okay, this is that part of the dance. And then what do we see is like hospital births and medical interventions. And we think, oh, well, this, there's nothing happening. Let's just cut the cord. Let's do this. Like people didn't stop to think there, maybe there's still some purpose to this whole system. Yeah. I mean, I always say the human mind will never outsmart nature slash the life force slash evolution, but we sure think we can. And it has its most devastating effects, I think in childbearing. Um, So then, yeah, like what, what my mineral tests that you interpreted showed were that I was very, very low in retinol. 
Yeah. And we realized through our conversation that it is likely from my 12 years of being vegan and vegetarian, including a fully vegan pregnancy and I think seven month postpartum period. Um, and then I did start for then for 10 years, I ate a good amount of animal fats as soon as I kind of woke up from that and started recovering. But then I had a second child and my retinol is still super duper low. And you helped me realize that like you, and you were so sweet too. You're like, what a beautiful gift you gave your children, <laughs> all your retinol. <laughs> but now you need to claim that back and and get it back. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, we use retinol. Well, mothers are going to use it in, in a different way than other people because mothers, you're going to use the retinol the way that everyone else uses it, which is to load copper into these key enzymes but you'll also use it in breast milk because mother's milk is full of retinol that's one of the key dances that has to occur after birth which is what we were touching on that you know mother nature doesn't make mistakes there's no iron in breast milk and there's no vitamin d but what there is is a lot of retinol and that retinol is supposed to go with all the copper that mother gave the baby and help load that copper into all the enzymes while the baby is growing. And so I think it's really, it's amazing because if you don't have a lot of retinol available, you're still going to give it away to your babies. Um, and, you know, so that they have it. So it's, it is a gift in a way. Um, you gave it all away. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mentioned to you during that call, which folks can listen to on Patreon if they want to see the whole thing, but um, this woman, Lily Nichols, who's a nutritionist, like specializing, she wrote the book Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Um, but I mentioned this to you, but I just pulled up the email. You need 60% more retinol, vitamin A, during breastfeeding compared to pregnancy. Yeah. It's a real, it's a really intense part because that mother's milk is full of retinol and you've got to, you've got to make that constantly. So if you had a vegan, were you vegan? I don't remember when you were breastfeeding your first baby. For seven months. Yeah. So you're just burning through all your retinol at that point to try to create the last drop of milk for, for the baby. Yeah. And she was yeah. chunky. And healthy. <laughs> yeah. Still very vital and strong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very depleting on mothers, too. You know, you mentioned that some of the indigenous wisdom was to wait three to three years or maybe four years. It's, it's incredibly depleting. Imagine giving 10% of your minerals to another human. I mean, how are you going to feel after that? This also explains why a lot of women have postpartum issues mm -hmm. is that they gave away so many of their minerals mm -hmm. and and then things just don't seem to work anymore and they have to really replenish themselves um how okay i want to touch on another another post which is kind of tying back to what we were talking about earlier i could talk about the like maternal health and generational health forever and thank you so much for putting that piece together with the metabolism and maternal grandmother i think it's so interesting um but i want to go back to sort of like the 
you're saying the people that are doing a lot of these psychedelic plant medicines tend to, you know, end up depleted or maybe they're coming into it depleted. But you have this post where you say those drawn to the self-healing world often end up the sickest. The reason is simple. Lots of things promoted in the alternative health space wreck mineral status. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not so much in the plant medicines as psychedelics world as much as plant medicines as like simple herbal nutrition world. But I have definitely noticed that, you know, I, I also live in a, a community both online and in real life of people really interested in and quote alternative health um, who it's like some people just get worse and worse. Yeah. I've seen it. I've seen it with my own eyes and I, I, I find it interesting because I have, I have a mix of people in my life. I have most of the people in my life, friends, et cetera, are in the, I guess we would call it alternative space because they don't subscribe to most of the mainstream health advice out there. Yeah. I, I always have to do the quotes around alternative because really what we're reaching for is like the way our ancestors lived and the way homo sapiens lived for 99% of human history. So really like mainstream modern medicine and all the toxins and processed food is the alternative. If you take an evolutionary human perspective. Yes. I always have to talk about that. Well, there's multiple alternative worlds. That's the other thing. You know, there's, there's the biohacking alternative world. There's people who are into supplements after supplement. Mm-hmm. There's the people that fast themselves into oblivion. They're just fasting all the time. There's the people that are really into the colonics and the cleanses and the juice fasting. And so there's not just one alternative. And that's, I think, what I was trying to point out with, with that post is that a lot of the things that are, quote unquote, good for us, you know, if you, if you dive, if you're just rejecting the mainstream and you dive into, okay, well, how can I heal myself? Which I think is a really important impulse to have because it shows that I'm no longer giving my power to a medical system to heal me. I'm going to take, take this, you know, upon myself and I understand that the body has the power to heal. So that's a really important, important impulse and i think it's the first stage of healing is recognizing that we we are our own healers but then you end up in realms where a lot of the things like i just rattled off a whole list of things a lot of the things are just devastating to our minerals <clears throat> such as coffee enemas fasting um, a lot of the supplements that people take are are just destroying mineral status and then it just becomes a uh, a compound situation because people don't understand that what they're doing is actually worse than, than if they did nothing. (laughs) And, and you start to see that people's symptoms, maybe they resolve one symptom, but then something else happens. It gets more complicated and they're constantly trying to resolve something. And I, I don't, I don't want, again, I don't mean to shame anybody because this is what I did. (laughs) this is my life, you know, and I have always taken my health in my own hands. And there were things that I did that in retrospect, I can see that they just contributed to me getting sicker and sicker, but I never correlated it because I didn't understand how important it was to guard my copper, how important it was to maintain my magnesium and my retinol. And if I would have understood those key things, then I probably would have been able to 
say no to certain alternative treatments that seemed innocuous, when in fact they weren't innocuous, they were harmful. And I, I, I'm encouraged, I guess, because there's this whole movement now of people who are sort of healing from healing that are coming around and going, oh God, okay, we need to step back and look more towards uh, the wisdom of our ancestors. And I think I keep always looking back to my great grandparents, you know, your mom, a hundred years old, you said, mm-hmm. yeah, amazing, right? Yeah. We should be taking health advice from people like that. That's a lot of wisdom, yet somehow we think, oh, no, they don't know. Well, they're living a long time. And my grandma, Aggie, Agnes, she lived to 92, and she was very healthy, you know, most of her life. She didn't, she didn't end up in a wheelchair. You know, she could always walk and do her things. And so I think a lot of it is, is just kind of coming back to center and coming back to, to understanding greater wisdom. But, but it's true. There's a lot of alternative health things that are damaging to our mineral status. Art, can you name more specifics? Like I wouldn't have thought of coffee enemas. Coffee enemas are incredibly damaging to minerals. They, they cause us to excrete minerals every time we do them. I know people do these things regularly and then they wonder. I, I'll give an example of somebody and I'll just keep it anonymous. But it's a person who is dealing with cancer and got turned on to coffee enemas as somehow the solution. A lot of people. And yeah, and he died um, just a couple of months ago. But it was sort of to me like when I, when I would see this person, I would look at them and think they have no minerals left. They're all gray. They're, their skin is pale. They're weak. They've depleted themselves. That person had worked with plant medicines for like 20 years, adopted a very strict diet, probably didn't eat salt or fat or any animal products. So there's nothing left in the body. And then the solution given to them is strip everything out, more coffee enemas. And to me, that's an incredibly weird way of addressing a, a system that is lacking energy, is to strip it even more. The... The other things that are kind of out there would be a lot of the supplements like vitamin C, you know, not real vitamin C, but ascorbic acid strips you of your copper. A lot of people take vitamin D thinking that they're vitamin D deficient, oral vitamin D. This tends to have devastating effects on copper and and also our potassium and, and other things. So, you know, there's a few zinc, for instance, everybody loves their zinc, you know, and it's not as though we don't need these things. We need vitamin D, we need zinc. But the supplement forms tend to strip us of minerals in an unnatural way versus getting these things from whole food sources. I mean, there's a lot more, but there's things like that, which I did. I did IV, vitamin C, um, Another these kinds of things. Another treatment. Yeah. And that's, I after that, it wasn't, it's, see, the problem is when we lose minerals, we don't know that, we don't usually feel the symptoms until later. Mm. So it's very challenging to correlate. I had all these IV treatments, and then three months later, I had a symptom occur because the body's a little bit slow. So we think, oh, it's not related to the, the vitamin C IVs, but it's actually related to the copper that was stripped out by those 
vitamin C IVs. And then it took time for that loss of copper to result in symptoms that I experienced. And then fasting as well? Fasting is, is interesting because I've consulted with several people who that seems to be their go-to throughout their life, which is that if they need to lose weight or they need to cleanse, they'll just do fasts. And water fasts, well, you know, this goes hand in hand with mineral loss because if we're fasting and we're just drinking water, for instance, for several days, or some people do these for extended periods of time, the body has to maintain a certain salt and potassium balance within our blood. It, otherwise, we're going to die. <laughs> this is just basic biology. So if we're not taking in the minerals through our diet or drinking them, we're just drinking plain water, then our body's going to look for those minerals somewhere. I mean, it's going to look for them within our bones, within our tissues. It's going to pull them out. And so those kinds of practices can be very depleting. Now, it depends on the person. This is one of the things that I point out in the plant medicine world. People that are the indigenous people of the Amazon that work with ayahuasca and these other plants, they'll go on extended fasts. But when you meet these people, you know right away that they're in a completely different state of mineral health. I mean, they their skin is dark, like they have lots of color in their skin. They've got perfect teeth. They've never had braces in their life. And they have dark jet black hair, not a single gray hair, full head of hair. So if they go on an extended fast, they have the reserves of the minerals in their body. So they don't suffer the consequences. But then somebody, you know, from our culture that's already depleted does it. And it's just pushing people over the edge. So it's not all bad. It's just a matter of knowing where we're at. I tend to see people that are depleted. They're the ones that want to do more and more of the depleting activities for some reason. Because they feel like shit and they are doing the things they've heard can help address that. Exactly. Yeah. So those, those practices that deplete us, what ends up happening is that each time we, we go through a, a practice like that, whether it's fasting or we're doing something that strips us of minerals, is that our body adjusts and it creates a new normal, a new homeostasis. And oftentimes you don't notice that building. So I, I give the example of people that I, I've worked with who started fasting in their 20s, for instance, as they felt really good. They felt so great when they fasted and it became a go-to for losing weight, for instance, or just cleaning themselves out. And then by the time they're 40, it no longer works. And they can't lose weight fasting. It just doesn't come off and they don't feel good. In fact, they might feel sick if they fast. And what's happened is their metabolism has slowed so much over the years based on that practice and, and also the depletion of minerals that they're at the tipping point where it's no longer something their body can tolerate. So. A lot of the practices are like that, where it's, it, it seems okay at the beginning, but if we continue down that path you know, and, and push it too far, uh, the body will eventually hit a wall where it says no more. Yeah, that's so interesting. I 
think I talked about this on uh, episode 87 with Kimber. And if it wasn't on the podcast, it was on the Patreon um, that I, yeah, I fasted in my 20s, started fasting again in my late 30s, did a fast, an 18-day fast a month before my 40th birthday last year. It was fine. I did lose weight. I did have the crazy energy. <laughs> um but I have not been able to do it since. And this is before I found like sort of the metabolic approach and, you know, looking at my mineral status, but I considered it a few times in the last year. And I was just like, I can't, I can't like my, my body was like, hell, don't even, don't you dare try to not put any food in me. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting also to think about the variety of humans we have on this planet. Humans are the most adaptable species. I mean, we live in every climate. You think about all the cultures and all the languages and all the cuisines and all of the many forms of art and music. I mean, we're so diverse. And the diets are fascinating because you can go to one part of the world and look at their diet and go, how is that possible that this is what they eat and they're in perfect health? And then you go to another part of the world and it's completely different and they're also in perfect health. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's not as though, you know, there's one way of doing things. I think, I think we also have to understand ourselves, which is why I, I do point to the ancestral wisdom to kind of look at where we came from. But like, for instance, it, fasting is fascinating because it does work for some people if that becomes your lifestyle and it's sort of, you have to, you have to commit forever almost because it lowers your metabolism so much that if you then start to eat later, your metabolism can't really handle it. But if you're going to exist in a, in a lifetime of starvation, like I think of the ascetic yogis, you know, the people who are super skinny and they eat like one grain of rice. Yeah. Well, they'll live for a very long time because their metabolism is so slow, but they also aren't eating. And they're kind of, they've put themselves in this state of suspended animation. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't, I don't personally want to live that life because I like food and I like having energy and I'm not sitting around meditating all day, but, but these things can work. It's, it's fascinating. And I think for us, because we dabble in the West, it's like we dabble with this and we dabble with that. And it's probably the dabbling that does us more harm than anything else. Totally. Um, okay. Let's get into, I, I want to ask you to explain who Morley Robbins is, like how you found his work, sort of what the basis of the root cause protocol is. And then I want to talk about iron, copper, and magnesium. Okay. Morley is probably the smartest human I know on this planet. Oh. And it's, it's hard to encapsulate who he is. He is now in the second phase of his life. I'll tell you that. For the last 10 years, he's just been working with people as a health coach and a researcher and training practitioners. Before that, he was working at hospitals. And I find his story interesting because he talks about this very rarely. But when he was sort of towards the end of his career, what, his, what he was doing was forecasting disease. He worked for hospitals and he, his job was to pick a date in the future, for instance, like 2025. And in, let's say in 2005, they're forecasting 20 years in the future. What kinds of doctors are we going to need? What kinds of practices are going to be busy? What kinds of diseases are going to come about? And so he already saw back, 
you know, before 2010 that everybody's going to be sick by 2025 because that was his job. And he knew that the medical system was gearing up for it, mm. almost planning it and knowing it was coming. And that's, I think, when he decided that he had, he had to do something else. I mean, a lot of his story is, uh, is out of his own self-healing journey when he was sick. But for the last 10 years, he's basically been known as the mineral guy because he's, he's trying to put the pieces together on why is everybody suffering? Why is everybody sick? And I think the most interesting thing to know about his philosophy is that he doesn't believe in medical disease which I think is why I really resonated with him because medical disease, as we think about it, is, is a label. Like we can pick any disease and they have a label for it. You know, um, Crohn's disease or multiple sclerosis. So because as humans, we give a name to something, we've birthed it into existence. Multiple sclerosis exists because we say that it exists. When in fact, what it is, is a uh, a number of different symptoms that are manifesting, and then somebody puts a label to it. Well, that whole mode of thinking, I think, gets us into trouble because when we believe in something that it exists, we actually give it the possibility of existing as an entity, as a thought form, as a, a belief system. And I really resonate with Morley because he doesn't go that route. He doesn't attack disease or diagnosis. And in, in fact, he tells you to kind of ignore that part because those belief systems end up leading to the, the things that we don't want. Um, I, I do, I'll just touch on that one more, which is that all these names of diseases come out of something called the Merck Manual. And when I first heard about that, I was like, that doesn't, that name sounds weird. Like, why would they call it the Merck? manual of course nowadays it's electronic and you know doctors put in their symptoms of whoever's presenting and out comes the diagnosis like it's probably this xyz disease until i realized that it's called the merck manual because it's made by merck mm -hmm. <laughs> which is a drug company and then that tells you something about who's designing the psychology of medicine the belief system of medicine. Um, but really at its core, if you go into all the diagnosis in that manual, all of the labels, they result from the same underlying cause, which is the body is not making energy properly and it's not clearing exhaust. The body basically has to make energy at the mitochondrial level and that energy has to allow it to also clear toxins, clear waste. And if we don't make enough energy, we can't clear waste. We end up in, in a, a bad situation. We end up with inflammation. We end up with symptoms starting. And then if the symptoms get big enough, more pronounced enough, then we'll get a label. But at the root of it all is mitochondrial dysfunction. Now, a lot of people talk about mitochondrial dysfunction, but they don't, they don't address the cause of that mitochondrial dysfunction which at its root is mineral dysregulation. And mineral dysregulation sounds like, oh, we're just talking about, oh, we need to take some minerals. It's not. It's actually much more complicated. And so that's what the root cause protocol is all about that Morley created, which is just trying to get more energy into our cells 
so that they can make energy and they can clear the exhaust better. And then the symptoms go away and the labels that go with those symptoms go away with those symptoms. People feel better and, and can resolve things. Now, the ability to resolve things through that protocol is dependent on how far people are along in their journey. If you, if you start that and you're already stage four cancer and multiple issues, it may make you feel better, but it may not be able to, to, to solve anything at that point. But for people who are relatively healthy still, I think the protocol is, has been life-changing for thousands of people, including me, bringing me into a state of health. And I've seen it with others too. So that's, that's, the essence of who Morley is, he teaches primarily practitioners now. And I went through his practitioner training. And the thing I like about him is that he's very curious and he's always adapting. He's not set in his ways. And he's even taken some of the ideas that I've brought to him. And he's just said, oh, wow, this is amazing. And thank you. And he's, he's open to always learning more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I appreciate that about you too. And In fact, your Instagram bio says a well-mineralized mind views all with curiosity and a well-mineralized body heals itself. And the CU in curiosity is in parentheses because that's copper. CU is periodic table. Um, So so in Morley's book, Cure Your Fatigue, which also has the CU in the parentheses, um, he talks about how you know, these three minerals are, are the most important to look at and to get into balance, because once you get those into balance, other things tend to fall into place. So iron, copper, and magnesium. And I would like to spend some time on each one of them and, you know, speak about, of course, their physiological roles, but also their archetypal energies that humans have picked up on for a long time. So, We also talked about iron in the um, episode with Kimber Malden, 87. And it, I mean, that, like, I can't believe I didn't know this until the last few months, you know, that iron toxicity is the real issue. The people who are diagnosed anemic actually are full of iron in their tissues. um, But they're just looking, doctors are just looking at the blood iron levels. And that, I mean, it just blows my mind. I, I also think I talked about this in the episode with Kimber, but I've seen these videos where you can do this. You go to the grocery store, buy some cereal, take it home, put it in a Ziploc bag with water until it all melts together, and then take a magnet to the outside of the bag, and these tiny little iron filings will come to the magnet. They literally just add like industrial waste metal into the food. And I too, I grew up, I ate Cheerios every freaking day. Like everything in my cupboard and my refrigerator growing up had some sort of processed wheat in it. And that's everyone I know and in our generation and the younger generations. And what I was super interested in with your work is you talk about um, iron carrying the frequency of fear and it having this sort of a masculine patriarchal king energy. And you write, when we address iron dysregulation on a physical level, it translates to changes in our fear response on a conscious level. 
And that persistent emotional activation interacts with iron in the body to create oxidative stress and disease. So I know that's a lot to look at, but I think iron is just so important to understand, to unlearn everything we've been told about it. This is one of those paradigm shifts that, I mean, it's hard not to cry. It's it's easy to laugh at and think this is crazy, but they have literally been putting metal in children's cereal and and you have to wonder about the intelligence of this because when i went through morley's course he does not hold back in that course and you get to read all of the studies but they've known for for a long time that this is not a good thing Mm -hmm. and in fact before they were doing this we knew that the cure for quote-unquote anemia was to give people copper and or retinol usually Mm -hmm. cod liver oil And that was the treatment since the 1800s, is if somebody was quote-unquote anemic, what's happening is that the iron isn't being mobilized into their blood. Of course, there's enough iron in the body, it's just not in the blood. How do you get it in the blood? You have to have copper and retinol. So in the old days, they knew that, and they would give people cod liver oil, which is a very high source of retinol. The iron fortification system This is why I think you end up with people who are labeled conspiracy theorists, because you can't look at that and think they they had our best intentions at heart. Because we know from studies that what iron does when it enters a cell is that it causes inflammation. It basically causes that cell to freak out. It causes the cell to signal danger, 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 and release cytokines and other pro-inflammatory um processes now that that is what i meant when i said that it carries the frequency of fear is that it activates the fear sensors of our cells our cells are actually scared when they encounter iron floating around inside of them and they freak out and they try to get it out the other aspect to this which is much more esoteric comes from my my own experiences with experiencing fear and experiencing things that I couldn't explain. Um, And part of it comes from this tattoo tradition. I I don't want to go too far afield, but I have all these tattoos on my back. They're from Thailand and they're done by monks and they hand poke all these tattoos. Now each tattoo has a different purpose. You know, they'll say that it's for protection or it's for prosperity. When I got these tattoos is also around the time I started to feel really sick. I found out later that the main thing in tattoos is iron oxide, the same thing that's in the breakfast cereals that you could pull out with a magnet. And I always wondered, you know, they're putting some kind of energy into that tattoo. They intentionally need some kind of carrier to hold that energy. And the carrier has to be magnetic. Iron is extremely magnetic. There's an aspect to this that gets into the esoteric and the the weird and unexplainable because while iron is a physical metal, it has electromagnetic properties to it that actually can interact with radio waves, um, you know, cell phone towers, things like that. And so when we have lots of iron, we tend to actually carry a lot of fear in our body, not because the iron itself on a physical level is fear it's because it carries that frequency it attracts that frequency it's almost like a magnet for for bad juju (laughs) if you will 
And, and so it has this property within us that triggers us to be in a fear state, a subconscious physical state, but it also has this property that tends to attract, you know, electromagnetic interference and things like that. Mm. So it's not necessarily a good thing for our health to have all that iron added to our food and be in our body. I did mention, I think the archetype of this, there's, there's strength in iron as well. So if you think of iron as steel, steel is what makes up skyscrapers and, and buildings. It's very strong. And of course we need strength, but there's no intelligence in that strength. You know, the steel doesn't build itself into a skyscraper or into a car. There's always an artist, a genius, a, a creator, and uh, some kind of force that's much less masculine, but much more intelligent, wiser. And that's the countervailing force of copper, which I view copper as she's like the queen. She's calling all the shots. She's telling iron what to do. Now, if iron is listening to her and we have enough of her around, iron is great. It provides us with the strength we need. If she's not there to rein him in, then he is like that king that just wants to go to war and is kind of angry and, you know, has a temper. And so that's the archetypes that I view the two as, you know, copper being the, the queen, the feminine, and iron being the king, but he's a little bit unwieldy. He needs, he needs some greater intelligence to rein him in within the body. It's interesting to think about all these many, many, many decades now that we've all had so much iron put into our bodies. And I mean, I, I'm in a fear state more often than I want to be just because of the world that I live in and the things that are happening. And then I wonder like the people doing these things, maybe these things wouldn't be done if they weren't so iron toxic. Yeah. You know, you read my Instagram little one sentence bio because I said, you know, well mineralized mind views all with curiosity and a well mineralized body um, heals itself. There's a there's a psychological aspect to this, which is that if we're I can tell people who are very, very iron toxic a lot just by their their reactive state, how reactive they are. And it's sort of like a reactivity versus curiosity. Mm. continuum if you can be presented with something that is very different than your belief system and view that with wow okay let me think about that how does that actually work that shows that you're kind of in a better mineralized state you're not being run by that force that that iron wall that just prevents you know you from seeing things and then there's people who it's like anything that it's against what they believe. It's so confronting. It's almost infuriating. Yeah. And they must reject it and they must fight it without thinking, without any curiosity. That's the energy of iron run amok that you see. And it, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that's the only reason people end up like that, but it is correlated. And I start to see that also in the work with the plant medicines too. It's like, these things filter into our experiences when we're on plant medicines. You know, how much iron we have rolling around the body. If you go to an ayahuasca ceremony, you experience a lot of fear. And it's everybody else's fault. 
and they cursed you and they ruined your ceremony <laughs> mm-hmm. versus people who are like curious and they're like, okay, wow, you know, that's fascinating. And I'm learning, and, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's hard to understand that we are influenced so heavily by these minerals within our body, but our consciousness is not local really to ourselves. I mean, our consciousness is an epiphenomenon maybe, but it's also bringing in aspects of the world. It's, it's very complicated. And when we are dealing with metals, some of which are magnetic, like iron and copper, which is electric, you know, we're dealing with aspects of our consciousness at the same time and how that consciousness works. So these things are really interesting to me. And I've noticed for me that the more that I've worked on getting my iron down, not in my blood, I want iron in my blood, but getting the the toxic iron out of my system, my whole system is just relaxed. It's much easier to live. A lot of people kind of convey that sentiment. Um, Torian, who you, you know, she just did her first blood donation last week. I mean, she was just like, oh my God, this is a ceremony. Mm-hmm. She was ready for it, you know, but she had been doing the RCP and, you know, preparing. And I think a lot of people have that experience. Like if you're ready for it, if you're in a good place and it's not going to be depleting, to feel that amount of iron leaving it takes away a lot of this subconscious fear, nervous system energy that you almost don't know it's there because you become accustomed to it. Yeah. That, that's why during our, our call with Owen, why I said like, oh, I kind of wanted to be told to give blood because I've, I've read these, these experiences people have of really like offloading some heavy shit when they get rid of all that iron. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, I think I'm, I'm not the only one who's like this, but I, I also want to look at people and make sure because giving blood is stress. Mm-hmm. It stresses the body. And so you have to be in a, in a place where it's not going to stress you too much in order to feel that benefit. Otherwise, I've had other people who they heard, oh, I should give blood, but I, I didn't consult with them or anything. They just, they just heard about it. Then they go out and they say, I was out for a week. I couldn't move. I couldn't get out of bed because it's too much of a stress yeah but but that that is pretty common i'm to the i'm giving blood tomorrow and i'm to the point where i just look forward to it because it's almost it's almost like i don't know i'd rather do that than anything else i just feel so good afterwards for you know a couple weeks wow yeah and i think i mean you told me you know my first most important thing for me to do is get my retinol back up Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm doing, taking Rosita cod liver oil. But I think you also said like it, the, the hair test showed high stress, which yeah. is absolutely true. And so maybe I'm not in the best place. Maybe I dress that and my retinol before I give a bunch of my precious, literally lifeblood away. <laughs> yeah. I think for you energetically, it's also coming from a place in me that I saw that you gave away a lot already. Um, of yourself just energetically you know as a mother and and at this point it's more i think about nourishing yourself Mm -hmm. and 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 accepting and receiving on the energetic level and then you know when when you've filled up enough energetically then to release that iron will be a really really good thing 
Yeah, I appreciate your like measured approach to health and not just jumping into whatever it is, but like it takes time. It took time to yeah. get where we're at. It takes time to get where we want to be. Yeah. Um, so copper, I mean, <laughs> it, it seems so misunderstood. I didn't misunderstand it. I know there's a lot out there about copper toxicity and people think they have too much of it. I hadn't heard that, but I, I just knew nothing about it. Absolutely nothing until I heard an interview with Morley. And it's been super interesting tuning into how important it is. So you kind of talked earlier about copper being the queen and um, like regulating. Yeah. Just tell us more about like the physiological things that copper does and why it's so important that we look at that. Yeah. There's a whole camp of people that believe copper is toxic and that we should be getting copper out of our system. The, the problem is one of where we're looking. Now, those people that have that belief, they're looking for copper in places where copper probably shouldn't be. You know, they're, they're finding copper in, in you know, the tissues or the body and the blood, things like that, where it's like, well, why is the copper there? For us, you know, the RCP perspective is you want copper inside enzymes. Enzymes are complex proteins that serve various functions. So it's hard to imagine this, but we have, let's just pick one enzyme or one protein, and it's called ceruloplasmin. Ceruloplasmin is a protein that probably 99% of people have never heard of unless they've listened to Morley Robbins or been tuning into this mineral discussion. But ceruloplasmin serves 20 plus different enzyme functions. It's a very, very strange thing to look at the, how it's built because it's a complex protein and it can have copper in it or it can exist without copper in it. This is, this is really one of the problems is just understanding that when we're talking about copper being deficient, we're talking about copper not being in the places in the enzymes that it should be. So we want copper in ceruloplasmin. We don't want copper floating around just aimlessly because that means it's actually leaking out of some place probably. So ceruloplasmin is one protein where copper needs to be in there. And when copper is in ceruloplasmin, then ceruloplasmin can do something that we call peroxidase, which is that it can take very reactive iron, which is called ferrous iron, and it can change the electron status of that iron into a benign form of iron called ferric iron that doesn't cause harm in our body. And when ceruloplasmin has copper in it, it does that transaction. That's what we need it to do. There's other enzymes called multi-copper oxidases. Anything that ends in ACE, like superoxide dismutase, um, glutathione peroxidase, you hear these ACE, monoamine oxidase. This gets way into the biology that kind of puts everyone to sleep. But just understand there's a lot of enzymes that their sole purpose is to manage oxygen. Oxygen we think of as this really beneficial thing, but actually what oxygen does was when it enters the body is that it's, it's reactive. And so oxygen needs to be managed. Everybody knows that, knows the term oxidative stress or 
they've heard that you should take antioxidants <clears throat> because oxygen is damaging. So all of these copper dependent enzymes, what they do is manage the harmful effects of oxygen essentially. And they don't work unless there's copper inside of them. And so the issue with copper is that most people don't have enough copper in these enzymes, so they can't manage the iron properly within their body. And when they can't manage that iron, that iron uh, causes damage. It causes inflammation, causes disease. And they also can't manage oxygen properly. So you've got two things that are out of whack now, oxygen and iron. And what's even worse is that when oxygen and iron come together, we get something called rust. I mean, you see it on your pipes or, you know, the old car that your neighbor has sitting on their lawn. But that actually happens within our body. And so imagine that all the iron that we're carrying around, if we're not able to manage the oxygen issue and, and convert that iron into benign iron, we're basically rusting ourselves from the inside out. You see that with aging. This is what causes aging. People get old and they start to look like they're made out of iron. You know, the joints don't move, things get stiffer. We just start to solidify. And that's because we're rusting. So copper is the magic uh, element. Copper is the only element that can really keep iron in check in that way. Okay. So I know people are going to be thinking, how do I get more copper? <laughs> um, and like, this is all... These are all just little threads on a vast web. They're really, what I've noticed since learning more about minerals is there's not a ton of like quick and dry answers. It's just, it's an ever unraveling thing, especially because we're all individuals and you really need to yeah. know what your mineral status looks like, which is why Owen and I did these tests and had you interpret them. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm just thinking about if I was listening to this in my car right now, I'd be like, please just like, where do I start? Yes. Off. Well, that's, that's the beauty of the root cause protocol, the RCP, is it gives people a framework and it makes it manageable. Yes. Because people's instinct is when I say, oh, we need copper in these enzymes, their first thought is, well, what copper supplement should I take? Yeah. The problem is that taking copper in a supplement isn't going to put it in your enzymes. And actually, that is the very condition that the other health practitioners would be concerned about, which is copper toxicity, which is just taking copper and not directing it to where it needs to be. So the RCP, I like it because the first step in all of this is to recognize those things that we're doing that could be damaging our copper. And I mentioned a few, you know, we talked about vitamin C, vitamin D, not zinc. Those. Yeah, because those things, those things are damaging to our copper and our enzymes. They may have some other benefit that people think, but I, I can tell you one thing, which is whatever that other benefit is, it's far outweighed by the detriment that they do to copper status. And so the first thing to do is just start to do an inventory of all the things we're doing that may be harming our copper status. And that's set forth in the RCP manual. It's just a series of stops. I always point people there because it's very hard to, to give a blanket statement that this is going to work for everybody. But if we stop the things that are known to stop or that are known to harm copper, that's a good first step for most people. 
And then from there, it's, it's really focusing on whole foods, mother nature sources of these things. The best sources of copper are those that come with other bioavailable nutrients and compounds. Like we never would have found copper. Our ancestors wouldn't just go up to a copper mine and eat a piece of copper. I mean, that's not the way that we got copper. And that's not the way our biology is designed to absorb copper. We always got copper from foods such as beef liver or bee pollen or the fruits that had vitamin C, whole food vitamin C in there. Um, we may have gotten copper from shellfish, depending on where our, our ancestors lived. There's copper in most animal, um, most animal meats and organs. And so when you get copper from these sources, there's no risk of copper toxicity. You're getting whole food sources of copper, usually with the bioavailable cofactors that are needed to make it absorbable. One of which I mentioned is retinol. And, and so taking copper by itself isn't the solution, but you know, really focusing on whole foods can help people. And if people really are interested in that, I think the root cause protocol is, is phenomenal at just directing people step by step on what to do. And so definitely not to run out and buy copper. That's not the first step. <laughs> and that can be found at rcp123.com. It's rcp123.org. Okay. And yeah. you can, there's a, let's see, I have it open right here. Um, the RCP handbook, is that what lists the stops and starts? Yes. Yep. The handbook, it's free. Don't take your email and um, they'll send you a PDF or you download a PDF. The, the stops, the starts are all listed in there. Plus there's a lot more description. The, the thing I'll say, we started to talk about Morley. He is one of the smartest people I've ever met. And one of the phenomenon that I recognized with people like that is that they can go two ways. They can either be so smart that nobody understands them and they're relegated to obscurity. And usually people think they're crazy. Then it's only like four generations later that people realize, oh, that guy was really smart. <laughs> But Morley's gift is that he is able to simplify things, I think, uh, in a way that makes it understandable. But you mentioned this. It's like thread after thread. It, it's very complex. So you don't have to understand everything to do the RCP, which is why they have that manual and the handbook. You can just go through it. People that want to understand it, they'll start pulling out threads and find a lot more information on that website or in podcasts or, you know, in his book, like you mentioned. I'm so curious. We've been really loving bee pollen. Like my, my five-year-old is so into it, especially. And I was thinking about this morning and then it's like, oh, you know, it's, it's just flower pollen. We call it bee pollen because it was collected by the bees, but it's just flower pollen. And I was just kind of tripping that like flowers would produce such a significant amount of bioavailable copper. Because remember we were talking about how much copper, you know, a mother has to give to a baby. Yeah. There's one thing about fertility, which is that it requires a lot of copper wow. rep reproducing life. Mm -hmm. That should tell us something about the energy behind copper, which is that it is the, the thing that gives us life. And so you can't pollinate 
flowers without lots of copper. So there's tons of copper in the bee pollen. And it, you know, more so in certain areas probably than others. And depending on the flowers, I mean, we don't know, but we know that there has to be copper in order for those flowers to, to blossom into fruits or whatever they're going to become. Wow. I'm so glad I asked. I had a feeling you'd have an answer for me <laughs> <laughs> of that. That's just, that's so beautiful. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's talk about magnesium. This is one where I feel like most people are aware that like everyone is magnesium deficient and so many supplements on the market. Um, yeah. What's the story with magnesium? <laughs> magnesium is it's so complex because I think the number is around 3,700. That's how many enzyme functions require magnesium in our body. 3,700. That is a lot of enzymatic activity happening. And magnesium is also one of these minerals that isn't persistent, meaning we have to constantly get it because we're constantly peeing it out, basically, or sweating it out. So going back a few generations, remember we were talking about our great-grandparents. It's like the food was rich with nutrients. They didn't have iron in their bodies. And iron in the bodies is the fastest way to cause magnesium to leave the body. So we basically have put ourselves in a situation that in order to maintain the health of these bodies that are loaded with iron, we need a lot more magnesium than our ancestors ever needed, and we need it constantly. And this is a challenge because the body doesn't like when we give it tons of magnesium. It doesn't want it a lot of times. So I'll say that, let me just touch on one piece that I think people will start to relate a little bit more to the significance of this, which is that when we don't have magnesium in our red blood cells, they don't live 120 days. Now, that should give everybody a little bit of pause because doctors, every doctor, no matter what medical school they went to, naturopathic, osteopathic, or they went to a traditional MD program, they're taught that our red blood cells live 120 days. I mean, even my doctor told me that at one time. What they forget is that they only live 120 days when we have optimal magnesium, which there's a number of for that, which is 6.5 when we measure it. But if it's anything less than that, those red blood cells are dying really fast. Now, our red blood cells are really important because they carry oxygen, but our red blood cells are also where 70% of our iron is. And when red blood cells start to turn over quickly, they're dying fast. They have to go through a recycling system, which goes from the spleen to the liver to the bone marrow. And that system gets overworked, overloaded, because it's constantly recycling red blood cells faster than Mother Nature intended us. This is one reason why people end up with, with iron everywhere, is that during that process of recycling, because we're cycling so fast, iron is just leaking out because our system can't do it fast enough. That's caused by magnesium deficiency. So you start to see that magnesium does interact with iron and copper in an interesting way. The other aspects to magnesium are that it's incredibly 
tightly correlated with our other minerals, specifically the electrolytes, like sodium and potassium. And when we, when we try to take magnesium in, this is one of those things that people hear, I need magnesium, and then they go out and they buy magnesium. When you take magnesium just in isolation without anything else, you're going to end up peeing out sodium and potassium. When you pee out sodium and potassium, depending on your diet, if you're not eating enough sodium and potassium in your diet or taking it in, that causes the release of stress hormones, cortisol, aldosterone, which are there to prevent the loss of minerals, essentially. Those stress hormones then cause the loss of magnesium. So I know it sounds strange, but some people taking magnesium are making themselves more magnesium deficient because they're not supporting the adrenals at the same time. So this is one of those things that the RCP really gets a handle on with something called the adrenal cocktail, which is just a way of keeping those electrolytes in the body and keeping the magnesium in the body. So the magnesium piece is so complicated. <laughs> There's also aspects to this that I think people need to start correlating with how thirsty they are. I always ask people when I, when I do a consultation with them, how much water you drink? And most people have been programmed to drink tons of water. They're just, they're so proud of the fact that, oh, I drink so much water. I'm drinking water all day. My pee is clear. I'm drinking water like you wouldn't believe. And that's actually a sign that you're magnesium deficient. When you start to get the electrolytes in balance and the magnesium in balance, you're going to notice that you're not that thirsty anymore. And I think that's kind of counterintuitive to what most people believe. Our bodies are actually designed to make water. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if, I mean, I'm going to go there completely because it's a little bit separate, but no. when we were, when we were, let's say we were 50,000 years ago living. Now I live in a desert here and there were people that lived here called the Hohokam. They're ancient North American, Native American tribe. They're not here anymore. There's no water where I live yet. They have cave dwellings where they lived and they lived and thrived here. How could people live in a place where there's no water? You wonder, well, we breathe oxygen. That's given. Everybody knows that. And then we're supposed to be eating certain foods like fats. And fat is made up of carbon and hydrogen just strung together. That's what fatty acids are. Well, what our mitochondria are supposed to do is take the hydrogen from the fat we ate and take the oxygen from the air we breathe and put it together and make water. H2O. And it's supposed to take the carbon that was left over from the fat, mix it with some oxygen, and we breathe out CO2. We're actually supposed to create water out of thin air, <laughs> literally, <laughs> and out of the food we ate. And if our bodies are in optimal health, we won't be very thirsty. So one of the best measures of metabolic health is how thirsty somebody is. Because the thirstier they are, it tells me that they're not making water in the mitochondria. But if they're not thirsty and they don't drink a lot of water and they're feeling good and they have a lot of energy, usually those people have really robust mitochondrial health. 
And I think it, just to correlate this with magnesium, the thirst instinct that we have, this evolved at a time where we were probably not in close proximity to water sources that were deplete of minerals. Our body knows how to make the water. I just described how it works. So that thirst instinct we have came to tell us to drink water for the minerals that were in that water, primarily magnesium. And so when we're thirsty, what our bodies are really craving is usually the magnesium in the water. And so that's another way to look at like where we're at from a magnesium perspective is how thirsty we are. That totally makes sense to me. I have thought about this a lot. Like, you know, most of our ancestors were hunter-gatherers, nomadic people, and water is heavy. And if you're getting from A to B, you're not always going to be able to stick by a water source. Mm -hmm. I've thought about this a lot. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't know that. I've never heard that. And that, that totally makes sense to me. Well, there are animals, I, because I live in a desert, I not only have thought about it a lot, I've witnessed it with my own eyes, these creatures that live here. You know, we have rabbits, we have coyotes, we have bobcats, we have mountain lions, we have tons of deer. Now, the deer will drink out of my bird bath, but not regularly, and there's not water back there, mm-hmm. and it's... And they are still peeing. I know that they're still going to the bathroom. They're getting water from the plants they eat, but their bodies are actually making the water. And our bodies are designed to do the same thing. So those people, you know, our ancestors, it's true. And a lot of the water sources are not clean for drinking. You know, the, the water sources that, that we, you would find in nature, it's like there are places where animals go to drink. They're full of mud. They're, they're not stuff that we would ever want to drink. Yeah. And we didn't have to drink a lot when we were in ideal health. The that whole mitochondrial system of making water is completely disrupted by iron. Mm. So we're not making water and we should be basically. Mm. Wow. Now I I can tell you that I don't I used to carry around cuz I live in Arizona in the desert I used to carry around tons of water cuz I had this fear like oh if I'm out all day and I don't have water I could I don't even bother taking my water bottle most of the time these days because I'll drink, you know, whatever I need at home and I'm usually not thirsty out on the road. Mm -hmm. So that's because thinking about like, so my mom started carrying around a water bottle like in the eighties and she was the only person, big plastic pink one. We, we brought it up when my sister and I spoke at her funeral and everyone was just like, oh my God, because everyone associated my mom with this water bottle, but no one else was doing that back then. And we forget that that is very new, that everyone is walking around with their water bottles. Yeah. And the water that we're drinking, most people are not drinking water with minerals. Yeah. So if you're drinking water without minerals, and when I say minerals, I'm primarily referring to magnesium and then potassium, a little bit of sodium that what you would get in like trace mineral drops. Mm-hmm. If you're drinking water that doesn't have minerals you're, and you're peeing clear, you're just washing minerals out of your body. That's you're all you're doing. not hydrating. Yeah. <laughs> you're stripping yourself because the water is hungry. Mm-hmm. So everything had become about filtered water. And, and I remember going to Europe when I was 19 or 20 with my friend who was Italian and we were in Italy and backpacking and every place was mineral waters, you know, in bottles. 
And he, he was the first person that told me, he said, you know, the water in the U.S. is terrible. You know, all, all of our water has minerals. It's like a multivitamin. And, and I start to see that, that that's true. You know, we, we take for granted that water is water, but water is not water. It, there's a lot of different types of water and, and depleted water is, is more harmful, I think, than good for us. Mm, I have found that too, that I'm, I'm not that thirsty anymore. I'll do a little cup of water with my mineral drops in the morning. And then I'll usually have another one in like four or five. I'll be like, Ooh, mm, water sounds really refreshing right now. And like, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the experience of a lot of people that start to work with mineral rebalancing is that they notice like, Oh, I don't need as much water anymore. That that's very tied into magnesium though. And I, I use that as a tool just to know, and people, you know, listeners can kind of think about that, like how thirsty you are, because your body's craving the magnesium in the water primarily, not the water itself. So if you're just drinking water without magnesium, in it kind of not satisfying the thing your body wants. In, in our consult with you, um, you, you could see that Owen was burning through his red blood cells faster than he needed to be and needed magnesium. And we talk about ways to get magnesium. So, cause we're running out of time here. And of course, Morley's download in the book and stuff like all, any question anyone has right now, th- there's an answer there on Morley's website or Hamid's Instagram and Morley's book. Um, but I did want to circle back quickly to copper and gray hairs what what is the correlation there and um is it reversible i'm praying every day that my gray hairs reverse themselves <laughs> <laughs> the it's not just copper but when we're talking about this is a good segue actually we were talking about how the mitochondria make water by taking the oxygen we breathe and the the hydrogen we eat and putting it together. That is their main purpose. And that's how they create energy because in that process, they create electrons. This is the electron transport chain. That's what powers us is what gives us life, but it requires a lot of energy to do that, to create water. And that energy is fueled by copper and retinol. If we don't have enough copper and retinol in those key enzymes, then the mitochondria, instead of making water, what they'll make is H2O2, which is hydrogen peroxide. If they get stuck at making hydrogen peroxide, because the next step is where the water is made, they split the hydrogen peroxide into two molecules of water. But if they get stuck at hydrogen peroxide, we end up with inflammation. Hydrogen peroxide, as you know, um, it's useful for bleaching things. And when it ends up in our hair follicle, it, it'll turn them white. There's also a component of copper in the, in the hair follicles themselves, because anything with melanin, which is sort of the same thing as in the hair color, requires copper. The body is really smart. It's going to, it's going to try to preserve vital function over non-essential function. So we often see the first signs of mineral deficiency in our hair, whether it's baldness or losing hair or hair turning white. You know, I started to get gray hairs like when I was in college. 
because what the body is basically doing is saying, I need to preserve for vital organs, for the liver, for the things that matter. And I'm willing to sacrifice the hair at this point. <laughs> willing to sacrifice our good looks. <laughs> yeah. And as far as gray hair, I've heard stories of people that it, it's reversible. I've also heard stories of people reversing uh, hair loss. Now, for me, I don't know yet because I haven't, I haven't really been on this protocol long enough. And then I had somebody who was really funny on Instagram going, if, if gray hair is all a mineral thing, how come Morley Robbins' hair is all gray? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that one. <laughs> and I said, well, he just discovered this all 10 years ago, and he's, I think, seven years old, mm -hmm. you know? I, one day, maybe his hair will be black. I guess we'll find out. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you write about people, you know, eating their indigenous or ancestral diets who reach old age. I, I know a native uh, Hawaiian man, dark skin, black hair. He's in his 70s, too. Yes. I saw that firsthand in the jungle when I was with the Shipibo tribe, this, this tribe that works with plant medicines. I was just blown away because... I was already suffering from hair loss, you know, since, uh, you know, my thirties. And I thought like, maybe they have a cure here, but it's actually, they don't have a cure for it. They just don't experience it mm -hmm. at all. And not only just full heads of hair, like I remember this guy, 90 years old, he actually didn't know his age because they didn't have those kinds of records. But I think people were telling me that he's at least 90 to 95, full head of black hair not a single gray hair. Mm -hmm. And we think that this is genetic, but actually those people, when they come out of the jungle, when they go live in the cities or they adopt a Western lifestyle, they do suffer gray hair and baldness. I also noticed it in Portugal because my, my ex-wife, her family's from the Azores, which is this beautiful island chain um, in the middle of the Atlantic. And I remember we went and I was like, I'm the only bald person on this island. Everybody here has perfect hair. And, and then I thought it can't be genetic because I looked at her family who had immigrated to the United States and they have a whole community actually in California of Portuguese people and they're all bald and gray. Mm. And I realized it's not genetics because over there they have hair and they don't have gray. And then over here, they, they have no hair and they're gray. It's environmental. Yeah. Um, I somewhere online read these women talking about a um, colloidal copper product. And I was reading the Amazon reviews on it. And there were a number of people who said they have reversed their gray hairs and mm -hmm. um, I don't know if undone wrinkles using it. Some people topically and some people internally. Yeah. It's all related to copper. I mean, I, you can kind of sound like a broken record when you start to get into this world, but gray hairs, wrinkles, our skin, you know, the color of our skin, whether we burn, whether we don't burn, it is all related to copper. And I, I have a feeling that for some people, it does work. I, I, I don't doubt that at all. I'm personally not, I'm not so adventurous anymore because remember we were talking about how those that you know enter the self-healing realm they tend to 
end up sicker because I've gone down the path of trying too many things and ended up worse. I'm super hesitant to try anything, especially based (laughs) on an Amazon review. So like, I I have a belief that it probably works, but you first, (laughs) I'm not, (laughs) I'm not going to do it just yet. (laughs) Um, Okay. I do. I want to, one more thing. Um, Cause I'm just so curious about this in the, the post I read at the beginning of our conversation, one of your slides, when you write that minerals are magic, performing incredible tricks with electrons, electromagnetism, light, and even sound. Like, tell me about the light and sound part of that. So we were talking about chemical reactions, but actually light and electromagnetism are the same thing. Light is actually just the visible spectrum for us in the wide range of electromagnetic energy, which can encompass anything from like X-rays to gamma rays to infrared lasers. And our cells are light, they work with light, which we don't think about. But copper, you remember I mentioned this protein, ceruloplasmin, ceruleans, you know, these these are always hinting at color. Now copper tends to absorb, I might get this exactly backwards, but either way, copper tends to absorb red light and give off blue light. Mm -hmm. So copper appears to us to be blue, but it's absorbing red. Now, iron, on the other hand, tends to do, I think, the opposite. There's some interplay of light happening here that we don't fully understand. There's also a a component with sound I mentioned because, well, I'm not 100% certain on how sound works, but I know sound does things within our cells when we're exposed to sound, that it, it works with the water in our cells. We were talking about water, but water can hold shapes and forms and structure. And I, I do work with sound healing. It's one of the things that I do. And I think that on a cellular level, the minerals help the water in our cells form structure and sound actually also helps. I think about the way that water is structured in nature is through moving waterways like streams. And it's the vortexes that happen, but it's also the sound of the water running on the rocks, the harmonics that structure that water. And so I think there's an interplay with how minerals in our body and sound and light interact. And the reason I say it's magic is because I have no idea how it works. It is magic. It is. Vision and light and electromagnetism and the sun and how it all interacts with our bodies through these mineral building blocks. It really is magic. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I want, there's more things I would like to talk about, but I do need to get my husband's phone back to him because I'm using his <laughs> Um, But I want people to listen to your other interviews. You know, they can just search in their podcast app where you talk more about sound healing. Um, the Hape, the information on the toxicity of Hape that you also have on your website and on your Instagram, I think is so important. Um, I had just done combo when I first found your page and I had just started and I really loved the way the hop made me feel, but I had, 
I had been like, mm, I don't know, <laughs> like there's something about this. Um, yeah. So I want people to tune into that. And then your recent stories on Instagram about cannabis use. Yeah. Were mind blowing. They helped so many people. They helped people. I know I, there's so much cannabis addiction now and people still pretend that's not a thing. Um, and these new strains and all the chemicals added when you're like vaping and stuff like that, your, your story, your highlight on Instagram about cannabis, I feel like is really important. And I hope people go check it out. Yeah. That, that was an unintentional thing that just happened yeah. because I share a post. So. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. one of those like, um, <laughs> collective consciousness things where people were really interested in, in your post and started writing to you about their experiences. Totally. Yeah, I, I've shared this a number of times on the podcast, but I tend to smoke weed maybe once a month, most months, not even all. And when I do, I use it very intentionally and it is always like profound and beautiful and healing and I receive insights and that's just not what happens when you're using it too often. Um, yeah. Not to mention all the like mineral and physical dysregulation that happens. Yeah. It's interesting. It's a hard, it's a hard plant to maintain a healthy relationship with as is uh, tobacco. They, they tend to draw people in usually people go deeper and deeper with them to the point where the thing that used to be healing starts to be the cause of the thing that you need healing from. And it's like a cycle. And I thought that was interesting to just see, you know, people share stories about that. Yeah. And um, I heard you on a podcast speak about tobacco and how it can be immediately addictive. And the first time I did combo when she you know, forced the hape up my nose. I literally opened my eyes and said, can I get some of that? Like to take it home, to do it home. <laughs> I, I've never had an addiction issue with, um, with tobacco, but well, I will, I will tell you this real quick. So then she did help me get like a home kit. <laughs> yeah. I did it a few times at home. And the last time I did it, I was sitting on the edge of my bed and the sunlight was streaming through the window. And I like, you know, exhaled, through my mouth, forcing the snuff basically up my nose. And, um, and then I think you kind of automatically close your eyes when you do that, like sneezing or something. And when I opened my eyes, there was all this tobacco dust floating in, in the light beams coming through. And I was like, Oh, I should leave the room. So I don't breathe that in. And then I was like, Oh, I just like, I just breathed it in (laughs) a lot of that. And so I was like, Oh, there's, and then I found your post a couple of days later and I was super grateful to have actual science to back up that this is maybe not the best thing for us to be doing. Yeah. I think a lot of people know intuitively, and that's one of the complicated things when you get involved with plants is that uh, some part of you knows like, Oh, this is, I don't feel right. It's not, it's not contributing to health, but then it will justify, you know, but it's also doing this or this and this. And I see that. And I, and I, I've been through it and I, I think tobacco is one of the most addicting substances. Not that there's no benefit to it, but we have, it's very challenging to maintain a good relationship with something like hape uh, because it just draws people in. And, and the mineral component, you don't have to, we don't have to talk about it, but the more minerally deficient you are, the more likely you are to be drawn in. Oh, I actually did want to touch on that with magnesium. You speak about how magne- deficiency of magnesium is involved in every step of addiction. 
Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I, I saw come out in some of the stories that were shared about cannabis too, is that people were, when they were able to get magnesium in and do some more remineralizing, they lost the cravings mm -hmm. to go back to that plant. And, you know, that's, we started off our conversation talking about, you know, the plant medicine world and minerals, but it's another thing that I, I mentioned, which is a lot of times we get drawn into working with plants as, as a ally or as a medicine because we're minerally deficient and they do help us feel right temporarily, but they don't solve the underlying mineral deficiency that's at play. And magnesium is huge for addiction. All, the, all addictions usually involve some sort of magnesium deficiency. So at a minimum, people trying to to get off of things or to get in better relationship, they should really think about magnesium and other minerals as a support system. Yeah. I think there's also a thing where people are like, oh, it's, it's an ancient sacred plant medicine. You know, it must be good for me. And then if you're mineral deficient, perhaps you're, mm -hmm. um, you know, not really tuning into your body's own wisdom or messages quite as much. Yeah. yeah and again, it goes to the people that had it for, thousands of years and still use it down in the jungle, they're completely different mineral status than us. What is innocuous and maybe beneficial for them because of their mineral status can actually be harmful for us because of our poor mineral status. And I have worked with people, I'm still working with people continuously now that are dealing with injuries from hape mm -hmm. to the sinuses. They can be incredibly damaging to the sinuses. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's other aspects to what they're doing, but people have quit and still can't breathe. Wow. You know, like six months later, because actually we have many studies about other types of snuffs, different types of tobaccos that cause cancer in the sinuses. And people think, oh, it's innocuous. It's just a plant. I'm like, you know, some of these plants, you know, there's a lot of plants that I wouldn't want to take because they're toxic. Right. They contain, they contain things that, you know, maybe. We should be wary of tobacco is one of the one of them it's it's quite toxic it has medicinal uses but it has to be used very very carefully and i think the hape thing is a, this is just my own personal observation is that it's gotten out of hand in the united states because people are using it without any context and without knowing what they're doing they think what's it's in completely it? innocuous they don't know what's in it yeah yeah, so interesting. So just thank you so much, Hamid. You really um you yeah, you're a bridge or you <laughs> you see bigger patterns, you put ideas together, and it's really important stuff, especially as psychedelics explode in popularity. And there's this false assumption that they're all safe and wonderful. Um so where can people find you and what like what are you offering? These days, you could find me on Instagram at Mineral Shaman is where I've posted a lot of these kind of slide decks. And then my other Instagram is Hamid Jabbar. That one is my, it's Hamid.Jabbar. It's just personal. There's a lot of bunny. I, I do videos of bunnies in my backyard. <laughs> There's not really anything that engaging on there. Um, my mineral stuff is at mineralshaman.com. What do I do these days? I I do one-on-one -on -one work with people working on, you know, helping them in all aspects. So it can be minerals, but it can also be working with people post, you know, plant medicine work, 
diet, um, any kinds of integration work. And I also teach people to work with sound and music. And I do trainings twice a year in person where we work with all kinds of um, instruments. And I'm working on an online sound training, but slow and steady will come out whenever it's ready to be birthed. And otherwise, I'm just out there hiking and enjoying the sun. <laughs> um, and yeah, Owen and I had a wonderful experience doing our hair and blood tests and having you interpret them and tell us what's going on with our minerals thank you for that yeah you're welcome My pleasure. thank you for taking these medicine stories in i hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self i love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes you can find past episodes my blog and our handmade herbal medicines at mythicmedicine.love. We've got reishi, lion's mane, elderberry, mugwort, yarrow, redwood, body oils, an amazing sleep medicine, heart medicine, earth essences, so much more, more than I can list there, mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, check out my quiz, Which Healing Herb is Your Spirit Medicine? It's fun and lighthearted, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with both the medicine that you're in need of and the medicine that you already carry and can bring to others. If you love the show, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash medicinestories. It is so worth your while. There are dozens and dozens of killer rewards there. And I've been told by many folks that it's the best Patreon out there. We've got ebooks, downloadable PDFs, bonus interviews, guided meditations, giveaways, resource guides, links to online learning and behind the scenes stuff, and just so much more. The best of it is available at the $2 a month level. Thank you. And please subscribe on whichever app you use. Just click that little subscribe button and review on iTunes. It's so helpful. And if you do that, you just may be featured in a listener spotlight in the future. The music that opens the show is by Marie Sue. That's M-A-R-I-E-E. S-I-O-U-X from her beautiful song, Wild Eyes. Thank you, Marie. And thanks to you all. I look forward to next time.